This UCSD TV program is a presentation of University of California Television for educational and non commercial use only. I've been instructed to give a non-technical talk, and in this talk I'm going to be explaining behaviors that obey the golden rule, uh, not the golden rule itself. And in doing so, uh, I'll be making some points extremely briefly, uh, which I wrote out in this book, uh, this little book a few years ago, The Neuroscience of Fair Play. Here's the problem. Uh, a, a few years ago, actually January of, 19, of 2006, uh, in New York City, a few uh, months before I wrote this book, uh, a guy was standing, Wesley Autry, uh, was standing on a platform, a subway train platform in New York City, and the person next to him had an epileptic seizure and fell onto the tracks, and a train was coming. Wesley Autry uh, jumped down onto the tracks and pressed both of them uh, onto the tracks such that the train could pass over, and in fact, it was so close that lubrication oil uh, was then having to be wiped off from, from the engine, was having to be wiped off of Autry's head. Now, now why did he do that? He was uh, not of the same racial background as the guy he saved. And in fact, when he jumped onto the tracks, he left his own young son uh, up on the platform. And so my job over the next few minutes uh, will be to talk about brain mechanisms that would allow a human being to do that. I'm proposing that human behaviors obeying an ethical universal, I'll claim that the uh, golden rule is at least widespread, uh, can be explained by neuroscientists, and I'll put forward a parsimonious theory to do so. In other words, I'm not going to make special assumptions. I'll be treating an ethical universal, or at least the widespread rule, the golden rule, as a natural scientific phenomenon. So as your eyes are skimming down these quotes, I'll tell you that uh, many, many years ago, I spent a lot of time in the history of religion section of, uh, uh, of a college library. And if you'll permit a double negative, I couldn't find any religion that did not have some kind of statement, a golden rule type of statement. And so what you have here is Confucius, you have uh, 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 Christianity, uh, you have uh, uh, Islam. Uh, and it doesn't take a, uh, a, re a religious point of view in order to say something like this, because here you have Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, uh, which is a philosophical statement and not a religious statement. So I was encouraged to think of golden rule-like behavior as something that might have a biological basis and that I, as a neuroscientist, might be able to explain it. I got further inspiration, I was doing this a long time ago, I uh, got further inspiration uh, from Axelrod at the University of Michigan and Hamilton. Uh, they showed in their science article that even computers can be programmed to exhibit reciprocity in their behaviors. There's nothing magical about the mechanisms proposed in, in the book that, whose, whose title I showed you. And what Axelrod and Hamilton did, this is the famous W.D. Hamilton, was to hold a tournament uh, among computer programs using the game Prisoner's Dilemma, which I'll show you in a minute. But the take-home line is that a simple two-step program won the tournament. Step one, cooperate with the other computer, and step two, do what the other computer did on the previous step. 
And the prisoner's dilemma, as you probably know, at least some of you will know, works like this. Prisoner B and prisoner A have committed a crime. And the uh, authorities are trying to get them to defect. In other words, they want B to defect and tell on A, in which case B gets a high payoff, the, the way the game is set up. Uh, and they also try to get A to defect and squeal on them both, in which case A gets a high payoff. But the fact is that neither A nor B know what the other one is going to do. And so the way the game is set up is that cooperation gets the highest total score. So what I figured was that if uh, a rule that humans seem to behave, uh, or at least they're told to behave, in virtually all the cultures that I could read about, and uh, is likely to have a biological basis, uh, and if it's even computable, then I, as a neuroscientist, thinking about this in my spare time, uh, might be able to explain it. So the main purpose of today's talk is to put forward this parsimonious scientific theory, which I'll explain in the simplest possible way, and how, of how we manage to behave according to the golden rule. What I won't be able to do today is honestly to envision the balance between CNS mechanisms for altruism and those for aggression. That's in the book, and we'll talk about that in more technical terms uh, tomorrow. So how does this work? It's a four-step theory. Step one is uh, represent one's impending actions to oneself. And it turns out that this, this uh, step one is grounded in classical neurophysiology. And I'll give you a pictorial example. Suppose you're looking at a scene and you move your eyeball to the right. The main question is, when you move your eyeball to the right, does the world appear to move to the left? And the answer is obviously no, and the question is why. The reason is that as you move your eyeball to the right, the oculomotor uh, system sends a command signal to the visual system, and this command signal is called corollary discharge. If the main discharge uh, moves the eyeball, the corollary discharge is the one informing the sensory system involved that something's going to happen. Thus, we expect the world to move in a certain way when we make a carefully calculated eye movement, which is registered in corollary discharge, and we, it, it accounts for the stability of the visual world. The big, that, that's Ray Offerant's theory, and that's at least 50 years old. To the earliest demonstrations of corollary discharge, which I just talked about, those involving the oculomotor system, have been added many studies involving other types of movements. Uh, if you'll permit me a mot motor physiologist's view of the embodied mind, quotes the embodied mind, you'd say that, quotes, we are the individuals whose movements we can predict. So the current theory, which I'm talking about today, simply extends that classical reofference theory that I told you about to social acts with an ethical import. So that's step one. Represent your own mo uh, the movement you're about to make to your own sensory surfaces or your own sensory physiology. Step two is to envision the, envision the target of one's social action, one social action that has moral import. And this, again, is grounded in solid neurophysiology. The first person to record face neurons in the infrotemporal cortex of the monkey was Charlie Gross, Bob DeSimone and Charlie Gross in, uh, at Princeton University. And they used electrophysiological techniques, but Nancy Canwisher at MIT used imaging techniques. And they, they and many people since them then have defined the face areas, for example, in the infrotemporal cortex. Uh, and they show how these uh, neurons can respond specifically to faces. So I imaging um, the target of your action is no problem. But now we get to the main point. This, this is the, the gimmick. Uh, it's to blur, or we could say merge, or we could say uh, have cross-excitation between the target's image with one's own image. 
And it turns out that with known neurochemistry, this again is easy to imagine how it's done, although it's never been directly demonstrated in the context that I'm speaking about today. And I'll give you uh, three examples. The first is simply, and I've talked about this with Nancy Canwisher to make sure that I was, I'm not a cortical physiologist, and so I wanted to make sure that I was barking up the right tree. First easy way uh, to, to, to decrease the performance, that we're, that's what we're asking for, is the decrease of performance of sensory physiological systems is to add noise to cerebral cortical activity. One way of doing it is to block inhibitory synapses, block GABA synapses. A second way of doing it is to uh, construct gap junctions, which are tiny tunnels between nerve cells and allow charged particles to go from nerve cell A to nerve cell B, thus accounting for a spread of excitation, thus allowing the blurring of perceptual images. A third thing is to play games with cholinergic inputs. The same cholinergic neurons that in your basal forebrain you're maintaining carefully because you don't want to get Alzheimer's disease have incredibly complex physiologic effects in at least two layers of the cerebral cortex and can ramp up and ramp down the sensitivity of those cortical mechanisms uh, extremely easily. So that's one way. A second way of uh, decreasing uh, 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 perceptual clarity, uh, that is to merge one's image with the image of the, uh, uh, um, the object of one's actions, is to alter timing. This was Nancy Canwisher's idea. Now, altering timing in these systems completely screws up performance. A third thing that you might have heard about, a third mechanism, is mirror neurons. This was discovered in the um, laboratory of Giovanni Rizzolatti in the University of Padua, Italy. And what it was is that they were recording from uh, a monkey, a monkey's neuron in the premotor cortex that responded uh, when the monkey moved its, his hand like that. And during lunch, when one of the uh, experimenters was holding a cup of coffee, the neuron on the other side of the room began to fire. Uh, the monkey's was, was treating the other person's action, the experimenter's action, as his own, merging the image of the other with his own. I think this is awfully easy, at least theoretically. And I can ask the metaphorical question, if we're talking about a computational device in the brain, is it simpler to improve a computer's performance or to break it? And step four is decide. If, as a result of the first three steps, you see that the, uh, this is uh, a good action toward the other, uh, toward, it would be a good action toward yourself, then you do it. And if it isn't, uh, then you wouldn't. My assistant is a professional artist, and so I can indulge in a brief cartoon before finishing up. Uh, uh, this little guy with the gun uh, has already uh, 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 represented his, the impending action to himself, namely shooting uh, this big fellow. Notice their hair and notice their shirts. Now he's going to envision the target of his action and the result of shooting the fellow, blood pouring out. And now, as you, if you notice the hair and the shirt, we're going to merge the images and at, at step four, the decision, we're going to do what no American male does between west of the Appalachians or east of the Rockies, um, <laughs> which is to, uh, to throw away his gun. So in, in finishing up, I'll just ask, is this an elegant theory? An elegant theory is one that gets a, a lot of implications with having very little special assumptions. In this case, no special abilities are presupposed. Richard Dawkins would be very pleased. Uh, secondly, it's, e it's easier to make a mechanism work lousy than it is to make it work better. We're asking for a blurring of perceptual uh, uh, images, not a sharpening of them. Thirdly, as I illustrated just uh, thinking about the current literature, 
actually the older literature, uh, there are many, many ways to throw off cortical perceptual function. And here's the key thing, is that all of these can work. They're not, ex all of those p possibilities that I talked about are not mutually exclusive of each other, and they could work with different strengths and different individuals. So there's a tremendous amount of flexibility and therefore robustness uh, with the theoretical output of this theory. So uh, to keep within time, I'll finish up by leaving you with the little red man uh, in, in this uh, artistic depiction, uh, this little red man's feet is touching the earth and the hands are supporting the sky. And so I attended uh, a, a gallery opening with the, the contemporary Chinese artist uh, Lu Shengzhong. And quoting from, from Lu, similar forms can be found in early civilizations from many parts of the world. As the earliest self-portrait and the earliest evidence of self-awareness, the shape illustrates congr congruities among early civilizations. He's talking in artistic terms uh, about the same thing as we're trying to talk about in uh, proto-scientific terms. Our theory, our neuroscientific theory, makes use of self-awareness merged with other awareness uh, to explain behavior that uh, obeys an ethical universal. Thank you.